Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation. We're going to look at uh, 12 and uh, 13 today. Um, I said that I wasn't going to give you a timeline. I'm still not going to do that. But let me just give you a, a big picture of Revelation by way of review. You can just kind of picture this in your head. You know, Revelation, I know that we love the timelines, but the, Revelation itself doesn't go in any kind of order. Um, in chapter 5, we have the question, you know, who's worthy to open the seals, right? And, and uh, we have in chapter 12, we have this kind of story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so that's what made him worthy to open the seals, right? So that doesn't come to chapter 12. And so you've got these things that are just kind of out of order. Uh, but over, overviewing uh, Revelation, chapter 1, remember we talked about at the very beginning, this is an apocalypse. And when you think of the word apocalypse, you often think of the end of the world, but the word apocalypse simply means to reveal, and specifically, Revelation is revealing Jesus Christ to us. And we see that in chapter 1, and then the end of chapter 1, uh, and chapters 2 and 3, we have the, uh, Jesus' presence with the church. He's, he's in the lampstands, he's walking amongst them. And so we have Jesus with the seven churches. In chapters 4 and 5, we have Jesus on the throne and Jesus the Lion and the Lamb. Uh, in chapter 6, we have this question, uh, who's worthy to open the seals uh, of these judgments that are come? And we talked about kind of the background of judgment. And then at the end of this, these seals are, are revealing these judgments to come, and the question comes, who can stand? In chapter 8, we have the 144,000 we looked at. These are the witnesses of all people of all time who are following Jesus. And then we have these uh, seven trumpets in chapters 8 through 11, roughly. And we have these bowls, seven bowls, in chapters 15 and 16. Some people say they're different judgments. Some people say they're the same. But we have these, these judgments that are coming. And in between there, there's like these parentheses, if you will. And in chapters 12 through 14, there's seven signs. And uh, the first sign is the woman, which is you know, Mary here, and picturing also later the church. And the second sign in chapter 12 is the dragon, which we are going to look at. And there's five more signs in these chapters, and they're all the miracles, these false miracles and signs that these dragon and these beasts do. And so then we get into finally chapters 19 to 20, or excuse me, 17 through 19, the fall of Babylon, 19 and 20, uh, the uh, final battle in 21 and 22. Uh, heaven. And so um, that's just kind of this overview of this thing. And we're kind of in these parentheses section where we're, we're, we're introduced to this dragon. We finally got there, the dragon, okay? And uh, so we're going to look at today, when we look at chapter 12, who the dragon is actually very clear. So we're going to talk about who he is, um, and then what's revealed in Revelation, what I think we're supposed to get from it, is what he does, how he operates. And we learn something about the dragon. And so we're going to a look at what he does. And John's biggest point is then what we do in, as a church, as followers of Jesus, in reaction to that. So who he is, what he does, and then what we're called to do. So open up to chapter 12. Um, just kind of do a little bit of, I'm not going to read both all of 12 and 13. I'm going to highlight 12 and then read 13. We looked at 12 several weeks ago. Uh, verse 1, a great sign, here it is, appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon and with her feet and her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant 
and was crying out in birth pains and agony of giving birth. And another sign, here's the second sign, appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, of the earth. And, and she gave birth in verse um, 5 uh, to a male child who was to rule the nations. Here's Jesus. And the woman fled into the wilderness. And so in verse 7, in, in light of this, this, uh, this dragon is described. It says, Now war arose between Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Now salvation and power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And skip down to verse 17. It says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those uh, who keep the commandments of God, who hold the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand and the sea. So there's the introduction to the dragon. Okay, Pretty clear who he is. We'll come back to that. Then we're, we're introduced to two more beasts, chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its, on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard and its feet were like bears and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now notice... It is separate than the dragon, although it's very similar in the description. Verse 4, And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And it opened its mouth to utter blasphemous, blasphemes against God, blaspheming his name, and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven, and it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them, and authority was given it over the uh, given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written beforehand, uh, before the foundation of the world, in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captive, captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is the call for endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising from the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and it, it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all of the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and the inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound had been healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the sign that is, it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it allowed to give breath 
to the image and to the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And all it uh, causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand and the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless it has the mark. That is the name of the beast and the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who understands calculate the number of the beast for the number of man and his number is 666. Wow. Quite some imagery there, right? Um, and, you know, we've all, those of you who've been around the church for a long time, you go, well, that's this and this is that and, and this means this. And I just, let, let's just, just kind of step back for a minute. There's a lot of imagery here. And so just in very simple form, we know who he is. Um, we know who he is. Uh, first of all, just so there's no doubt, John gives all of his names. He just, he spells it out for us in verse 9. In case you're not following along, and the, Drake, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, Genesis chapter 3, right? This is the serpent from the garden, who is called the devil or Satan. There, there you go. The deceiver. There's, there's like all of his names are thrown out there. Okay, there's no question about who we're talking about thematically. You know, in, in the garden, we have this, this place where God sets up his kingdom rule through his creation, his people living in God's presence, this kind of uh, temple-like garden. And all of a sudden, there's, there's only one rule, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as Eve is wandering through, she finds this serpent, who at the time of the story is not introduced. This is the best introduction almost we have of Satan throughout all of Scripture. Just in case you're wondering who it is. This is the serpent. This is the devil. This is the accuser. This, this is the one. And so we have this description, but what we see from Genesis 3, we go, wait a second, where did this guy come from? Well, he, he was thrown out of heaven. We just looked at that in chapter 12. And so we have this, we have this, this being, and, and what we know, just, just by a basic storyline, is that God's rule is being opposed by someone or something. There is a conflict that's going on. Any good story has a conflict, right? It has something that needs to be overcome. But here it is in the story of the Bible. This serpent, this devil, this accuser is introduced. So we know his names and we know his role in history. And it's spelled out even, even in more detail. Not only is he the one that deceived, but then he's introduced in chapter 1 of the one that accuses the brethren. And what we have here is a picture of Job, right? In the first chapter, God says, who's like Job? And we see that the, the Satan in the Old Testament, Satan is, is there. And he goes, well, come on, God. I mean, he, he worships you. He's so great because you have a hedge of protection around him. And so what is he? He's accused. Job's not that great. Job is only who he is because you've done this. And so, here we have this unfolding of the, the curtains of heaven. And so, well, let's see what happens. The accuser. And so, we know his role in history. And what's spelled out in chapter 12 is his aim. Look at verse 17. And the dragon became furious with the woman, and he went off to make war with the rest of 
of her offspring, of those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I don't know where people get it, but I hear it all the time. You know, man, I, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I've, I keep His commandments. Why isn't my life easier? Why am I not just blessed and rich and good-looking and powerful? And I, I, I just, I, I hear, now they don't say it quite like that, right? But they're surprised when life is difficult. And I kind of scratch my head and I go, are you reading the same book that I'm reading? We, we literally have a conflict that's going on. We are at war with a very powerful creation. Do not be surprised. And so we, we know his names. We, we know his history. And, and just to be clear, we also know what his aim is. And his aim is that he is at war with you. Now you say, well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't pick a fight. I remember one time when I was in junior high, a friend and I went with his parents to a place called Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. It was uh, close to our home, about 45 minutes, and it, you know, it had rides and beach and all the things that you love when you're in junior high. And so his parents let us loose, and we were, we were, you know, riding the rides and things like that. And I was walking down this uh, ramp from one of the roller coasters, and there was this just little kid shorter than me, small kid, you know, and he was being really tough, and so he's walking with his shoulders out, and he wasn't going to move, and I don't know what got into me. I'm not usually a conflict person, but I'm like, I'm not backing down from this little kid, and so we did the, the shoulder bump that you sometimes do with, you know, like that, and I walked down, and, and uh, a while back, I, I looked behind me, and apparently, Apparently, this kid had a bigger brother. <clears throat> that wasn't part of the original story. And so we saw, I saw uh, Mike, my friend's dad, and I'm like, oh, let's go, let's go ride the bumper cars with your dad, you know? And we stood behind him. He didn't even know we were there. I'm just like, ah, I'm safe. Tap on the shoulder. You bumped into my brother and didn't say, excuse me. And now my conflict ability just kind of shut down. I don't, I don't even remember what I said. Um, and, you know, I, in my mind, it's like, I wasn't picking a fight with you, right? But you know what? You don't have to. I'm just telling you right now, Satan has picked the fight with you. Now, I tried to avoid. I don't even remember what I said. I tried to avoid. And next thing I know, I was kind of on the ground. He pushed me down. Mike's dad woke up at that point in time, saw what was going on, and intervened before I, you know, got beat up. But the same is kind of true for us. You know, we're going to read, as we look at this text, Satan has picked a fight, and God actually allows the dragon to have some victory. And so I just, I want you to be aware of, we have to live in light of the fact that we are at war, that there's a battle going on. If you, if you try to live peace during a war, it just doesn't work, okay? So understand the aim of him. Now, second, 
what he does is clear. Now, I taught this uh, to a high school group uh, when I was in seminary. So it was many, many years ago. Uh, <laughs> yikes, a long time ago. And I was talking about this, and I've taught this here before, and I came up with this acronym that I, that I taught, That's the Devil, D-A-T, and that's the devil, and you know what? It's really worked over the years. And so here it is. It's right here in this passage. So that's the devil. The D stands for deceiver. That, that's just part of who he is. Okay? In the garden, deceiving Adam and Eve, did God really say? Right? And then he goes on. He goes, you know what? God just doesn't want you to have all the benefits of being like. He's deceiving. That's just part of who he is. In chapter 13, verse 4, it says, And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? You know, it's really interesting. It's actually a misquoted verse from Exodus chapter 15. Who is like God? Who is like... It's just... This, this question, who is like God? And you're like, well, nobody's like God, right? And now what are they singing and worshiping? Who's like the beast? He's a deceiver. And one of the ways a deceiver works, so you often think of God, white, devil, black, and red, and horns, and Jesus. You know, you're thinking opposites. That's not how a deceiver works. They just take the truth, and they just change it a bit. And what we have here is that he distorts the truth. That's what a deceiver does. He causes us to question God's goodness. Okay, sorry. I talked about that one, didn't say it correctly. He questions God's goodness. Second, he distorts the truth. Let me just show you something here. And I, it's really interesting. You have the dragon introduced in chapter 12. And then you have the first beast introduced in chapter 13. And this beast is worshipped. Uh, apparently he has some sort of mortal wound that he has a false resurrection type experience. And then we have a third beast. And the third beast op operates as the promoter for the second beast. Do you see what we have here? We have a distorted trinity. The dragon operates as the father, the first beast operates as the son, and the third beast operates almost as the Holy Spirit. And there's other language in here to point to you. What he's doing is distorting the Trinity. Now, Christians, I just want to say to you, the Trinity is so important to the foundation of what we believe, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I know it's hard to understand. It's very difficult. It's just... It's there. I mean, there's not a diagram in our ancient scripture to point it out. There's all these different, it's hard, but here it is being distorted by the dragon and these two beasts. Third, he corrupts God's rule. He questions God's goodness, he distorts God's truth, and he corrupts God's rule. In, chapters thir in chapter 13, um, I just want to point this out because it, it's hard to grab a hold of Look at verses 5 and 6. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and was allowed to exercise authority. God allows the beast for a period of time to be blasphemous and slanderous. 
Now, we talked about this idea of judgment. Too often we picture God's judgment as God zapping us, where really God's judgment is God's presence coming, and those who are excited about God's presence going to it, those who are opposing God's presence is running from it, and so God just kind of allows this, allows people to choose where they're going, and they go, and what we have here is people following these false gods and worshiping them, and for a season, God allows it. In fact, God even allows, and this is probably, for me, the hardest verse. I mean, there's all this stuff, just, you know, these horns and these, these uh, um, sea and beasts and all these things, and you just get this weird picture, and, and you're going, what does all this mean? But I think the hardest verse for me is verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. Well, I'm glad it's still under God's authority, but that's hard to wrestle with. And I, I mean, I just kind of, I sat at my desk again this morning. I prepared this message and, you know, I mean, it's right there. God allows this to happen. I, I make a bullet point, you know, that's part of me. I'm like a preacher. It's like, all right, here's, here's a bullet point. I point that out. And I'm sitting in my office this morning going, you're going to say that out loud. I'm uncomfortable with it. But then let's come back to the table. Jesus is the center. Amen? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus' love was shown through sacrifice. What's our, our, our vision statement here? Love God, love people, make disciples, following Jesus. Love through sacrifice. Man, that, that's the call here. Love and sacrifice. And then God allows the beast to be worshipped there at the end. And notice the picture, and you know, I read it again this morning, and Verse 7, the second part, all authority was given it over tribe and people and language and nations and all who dwell on the earth. It's, it's a repeat of what we saw in chapter 7 when he, he describes the 144,000. And so he's, he's given this rule for a period of time. But, but we, as followers of Jesus, we step back and we go, we're not surprised by that because we see all through Scripture Satan is the deceiver. This is just the deceiver, if you will, on steroids. It, it, it's, it's the accumulation of this. It's, it's, it's the bubbling up over time of here it comes. Here's his full deceptive power on display. Well, God's people make it through. Look at the end of verse 10. Here's the main point of this entire passage. He has this little poem he made up in verse 10. And then he says, here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Don't be surprised. He's, he's a deceiver. Keep going. Second, that's the devil. He's the accuser. Okay, we already saw that description in chapter 12. He's the accuser. And what we see is Satan plays this role of, of accusing you before God. And when we try to save ourselves, rule our own kingdom, 
Get to heaven by good works. Satan loves that, by the way. Because he can stand before you and go, and before God and say, is that person's works really that great? No. Is that person as good as they think they are? No. Against his accusations, there is only one response. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I'm saved by the blood of the Lamb. He is the accuser. And so he makes us doubt our position. And I mean that by our position with God. And we saw that in the story of Job. Well, yeah. Yeah, he's righteous because you've protected him. And Satan unleashes his fury on Job. And, you know, we, we, we love to quote. We love to quote the passage where Job and all this says, you know, um, I know that my Redeemer lives. Right? He, he has this moment. But, you know, if you read the whole story, Job has some pretty big questions. He's struggling. Why is all this happening? And so Satan plays this role of accusing us and making us doubt our position. Probably the biggest thing that he does is he makes us doubt our pardon. In other words, he makes you doubt your salvation. And I, you, look, if you're honest, and I know as a pastor, because people share this with me all the time, how do I know I... I, I know that I, I shouldn't doubt, but what if I'm, you know, not saved? Or what if, and we're constantly, where does that come from? And you say, well, I'm neurotic. And that's partly true. But also, because Satan is working. He's causing you to doubt. Listen to 1 John 2, 1 through 2. It's up on the board as well. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You see what we have here in the picture? We have an accuser, Satan, and what do we have on our side? An advocate. Isn't that a beautiful picture? So we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And so Satan says, do you see what brother or sister so-and-so did? They're not a good Christian. How can you say that person is part of your family? And Jesus is the advocate. And he says, I died for them. I covered that. That's been covered. He's our advocate. And he makes us doubt, number three, our power. If anyone is to be taken captive, verse 10, to captivity goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, listen, I know, I know we are uh, a premillennial uh, rapture. And so, man, I, I used to just read Revelation and I go, well, none of this applies to me because I've been raptured. Whew, safe. You know what? Somewhere in here, there's believers that are being persecuted. And all through history, believers have been persecuted. We see that the dragon is at war with his church. Whether you want to ignore the battle or not, you're in a war. 
And we know that he's a deceiver, and we know that he's an accuser. And so here, here is the call for you today. It's a call to endure. It's a call to be faithful. And we can do it, not because you're all that in a bag of chips. We can do it because Christ is in you. He's the power. So third, he is a tempter. This is probably the most common uh, description when we think of Satan tempting us. And, you know, I, I, you know, there's so many people over the years that have, oh, Satan, Satan made me, the devil made me do it. I, just, hold on a second. Okay? I love this verse, in, uh, these verses in James. Look at this with me. But each person is tempted when he, was, when he is lured and enticed not by the devil, notice, but by his own desire. Yeah, the devil tempts. Sometimes you just do it on your own. You don't need any help. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives, grown brings forth death. Listen, um, why is Satan tempting us? Sometimes, he, you know, we go, oh man, why am I, you're so far down the road, Satan doesn't even have to work with you. You're, you're, you're doing it on your own. And so, but here's why he, he attacks. Three things, just different verses. One, to question our faith. 1 Thessalonians 3.5, it says, For this reason, when I can bear it no longer, we looked at 1 Thessalonians uh, last year, I think, I sent to learn about your faith. Right? Paul is like, man, I, how are they doing in Thessalonica there? So I sent somebody and he says, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. In other words, man, I am afraid that he was going to tempt you to say that's not the gospel, that's not Jesus. There's the temptation. That's what he wants to do. The other reason why Satan loves to tempt people in the church is to soil our reputation. In 1 Timothy 3.7, it says, Moreover, he must be well thought of, talking about elders, by outsiders. Not people in the church. People in the community. So that he may not fall into disgrace and notice into the snare of the devil. There's nothing more than Satan loves it. Satan loves it when another pastor or elder has an affair. Satan loves it. When another church embezzles money or somebody in the church embezzles money, Satan loves it when we fight and argue and bicker and call each other names. He loves it. He's like, oh man, they're making such fools out of themselves. They're a disgrace. We're at war. Third, to do his will, not God's will. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, it says, And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after, uh, after being captured by him to do his will. Look, describe what Satan wants you to do is to do his work, not God's work. Be careful. Sometimes we're doing stuff in church and we think we're doing it for the right reasons and the right things, but we're doing our own thing, and Satan's like going, cool, now you're doing my job. Good hire. 
He's a deceiver, he's an accuser, and he's a tempter. Don't think of him as just every time this bad thought, well, that was from the devil. No, Satan is more specific than that. What he really loves to do is get you to question your faith, to soil your reputation, and do his work, not God's work. So chapter 13, going back in here. So we know who he is, we know what he does. And then here's this call for endurance and faith of the saints. If you've been going through Revelation with us, you uh, hopefully are hearing a repeated phrase. You're hearing something that has been said and is being said again. And so what I want to do, just just so we kind of, this is the call, we're called to endure. And so what does that look like? Let's look at these references in Revelation to endurance. And I've got five of them. Uh, there might be more, but I think I, think I, got, I, think I got them. Uh, chapter 1, verse 9. We're introduced. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He describes this partnership. Some of your older versions, partakers of endurance. So the first thing is, we partner with or partake in the same way this partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance. Like we're partners in this kingdom thing that God is restoring. From the very beginning, chapter 1, okay, chapter 2, here's God's creation, God's people in God's place under God's rule. And then it's turned upside down and we live in this upside down world We're at battle, we're in a war, and then we get to chapters 21 and 22 and everything's put right back uh, up, uh, up again and it's God's people in God's place living under God's rule. And so we are in this battle, we are partners of this kingdom that is to come. Your kingdom come. And so we're partners in this with John and others. Second, chapter two, verse two. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostle. And so we're called to be faithful in this, in this in endurance. And, and part of that faithfulness is calling out good and evil. And look, I, man, this war has been going on for a long time. It's not getting any easier. And so Revelation doesn't remind us that there's this Ticket out of here, don't worry about it. It reminds us that we're partakers in this. And that we have to faithfully push forward. Chapter 2, verse 19. This repeated phrase again. Whoops. Next page. I know your works, your love, your faith and service, and patient endurance and that your later works exceed the first. Your works. We we talked about this all through the churches. Be a servant of the kingdom of God. Be a servant in the kingdom of God. Look, there's no neutral ground in a battle. It's nice to think we all want to be Switzerland. Okay, It doesn't work that way. You can't be, so be a servant of the kingdom. Chapter 3, verse 10. He says, Because you have kept my word, 
about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Here's, here's some, some hope in that. But, but I want you to notice these words, because you have kept. Um, you know, it seems pretty s- simple in there. Uh, we looked at this in, in different contexts and different times. In Genesis, there's this really simple thing. He places Adam and Eve in the garden to keep it and guard it. And so tilling the soil, watching over it, and uh, it seems pretty simple. But then when Moses is giving us the role of the priests, he puts them in the temple to keep it and guard it. Same Hebrew words. And you, my friend, as a follower of Jesus, are to be priests in the kingdom of God. You're to keep and guard it. And it's not, it shouldn't, for, for a student of the Bible, it shouldn't be new information. It's, it was, that was the role from the very beginning. You say, it's not my job, it's the pastor's job. No. We are all priests in the kingdom of God. Priesthood of believers. We, that's one of our values as Baptists. And so we are to keep and guard it. Be a servant of his. So, uh, be servant of God, uh, chapter 2, verse 19. Be ministers of the kingdom, chapter 3, verse 10. And then finally, chapter 14, verse 12. Um, We get through this, uh, chapter 13, and these beasts, and we have this repeated phrase again. We saw it in um, um, chapter uh, 13, verse 10, and 14, uh, verse 12. Here is a call of the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith, in Jesus. Be obedient to the kingdom. Be obedient. Um, it's really popular today to just say, um, and, and the younger folks, who some of you, I'm, I'm using, you know, things, that, and I'm out of date, so they don't say this anymore, but, but one of the things that people used to love to say is, you be you. You be you. In other words, you do what you want to do. God never says that. God doesn't say, you be you, I love you, right? You can become whatever you want. He says, obey my commands. Follow me. And so, be obedient to the kingdom of God. Here's some application action. I think probably three things here um, when the text. First of all, just when we're called to faithful endurance, it's really a call to know the Son. In other words, look, he's the center. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. And I don't know where you are in your relationship with Jesus right now, but, and, and I, you know, I don't know when the rapture's coming or when the, Jesus is returning and all that stuff we don't know. I know that as a church we've been called to faithful endurance and pressing on, and I know that the biggest thing that you can do with whatever challenge that you're facing today is recognize that Jesus loved you, and he loved you so much that he took your place and he died for your sins and for my sins. That he rose again. And the Bible says that we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. The biggest thing that you can walk away for wherever you are in this, this apocalypse that we've been looking at in Revelation is to bow your knee to Jesus. To know him. And second, if we're going to follow Jesus, 
And we, and we know, as, as believers, we've been clued in through Revelation that we're in this battle, and we know who our battle is against. There's no hidden thing. It's the, it's the devil. It's Satan. It's the, the ancient serpent. It's the dragon. We know who we're fighting, and we know he uses deception, and that he likes to take things and, and twist it just a little bit, and he stands before God, and he accuses us, and, he, and there's temptations, and we know all this thing, and so we need to know the Son, but second, we need to know the truth. You're not going to know what's false unless you know the truth. And, you know, we, we encourage, one of the ways we encourage you to know the truth is, is our Bible reading that we do here as, as a group. And so those of you who are doing it, if um, we have the Bible plans that we pass out, and if you're doing the first half, right, where you read through the Old Testament through two years and the New Testament once each year, um, you're reading through, um, I got it, Judges and Acts. And some of you try to do the whole thing where you're reading through the whole Old Testament and the New Testament twice. And if you're doing that, you're also reading through Jeremiah and Mark. Um, and uh, that's been really interesting for me this week. Uh, because in Jeremiah, man, Jeremiah's just, he has one of the worst jobs in all the Bible. Go tell Israel that we're, I'm going to put them into captivity. And it's not, it's not a popular message. And Jeremiah is hated. And uh, in fact, uh, one of his jobs was to have these wooden, these wooden uh, stocks. And he was going to like, this is what God's going to do to you. And, and then we're reading Mark, and this week we're reading about Jesus' arrest. And they're accusing him of all this stuff, just like they're accusing Jeremiah. And I'm like, oh man, you just see Jesus as the, the role of prophet there. Just kind of came, it just popped off the pages this week. And so in Jeremiah, some false prophet comes, and he breaks the, the wooden, uh, what was it? It, it a yoke. He breaks it. And he goes, God is going to deliver Jehoiakim, and God is going to deliver Israel. God's going to break this yoke. And Jeremiah is just standing there. And he goes, well, no, this is what the Lord says. Uh, now it's going to be an iron yoke. You've created an iron yoke. God had a wooden yoke. You've created an iron yoke. And, uh, oh, by the way, prophet, you're going to die this year. But what you see, whose message would you want to hear if you're in Israel? You're a sinner. You're going off into captivity. No, God's going to deliver us. And there's going to be a season of peace. Oh, man. Which is it? Sometimes we just love to go to the message that we like. And so you've got to know the truth. And part of the truth of Revelation is there's a real battle going on against a real adversary who's been given authority. Finally, you need to know the Son, and you need to know the truth, and you need to know your call. Church, your call is to faithfully endure, to love God, to love people, to make disciples. It's part of the call. You have to press on. Let's pray. Well, God, thanks uh, for this morning and, and just the difficulty of your word sometimes. I thank you for the hearers. I pray that, uh, Lord, your spirit would work in their hearts and my heart to hear what is your message to us and to apply it to our lives. God, I pray for those people whose 
who are listening or here who you're working in their heart and drawing them into relationship with you, God. I pray, I pray, God, that you would help them to bow their knee to you and call you King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you for your love for us and for your church. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.